0: Good morning again and welcome. Uh, if you were here last week, you may remember that we announced that we are uh, have opened up the time for nominations for the office of deacon in our church. We have uh, two officers in the Presbyterian Church. We have elders and deacons. And uh, so I wanted to spend some time this morning talking about uh, the office of deacon, uh, realizing that maybe not everybody understands what that office is or knows what the Bible has to say about it or what we should think about it, so I want to talk about that this morning. Um, and the place to do that uh, in the Bible, uh, what, the place to start, I suppose, is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting at verse 8. Um, and so that's kind of where we'll be anchoring uh, the discussion this morning as we think about that subject Um, If you had been reading through Paul's letter to Timothy, if we had been kind of teaching through a series on that right now, then you would have heard me say numerous times that Paul's main purpose in writing that letter was to encourage and support Timothy in general, but to do so specifically by writing a letter that would help promote the good order and functioning of the church. And so if the church was functioning well and running well and people understood what their roles were, then that would be an encouragement to the church, but also to Timothy, And so that's what Paul is trying to do in this letter. And the, the church that he's talking to is the Ephesian church where, Paul, where Timothy was the pastor. Now in pursuing that goal of encouraging Timothy and encouraging the church there in Ephesus, Paul began his letter by dealing with the matter of false teaching and false teachers. He kind of wanted to rein both of those in and to guard and protect the Ephesian congregation. And after dealing with that issue, Paul shifts his attention to the whole matter of their corporate gatherings, the things that went on when they got together as the people of God, how they should approach that and how they should think about that. And within that discussion, Paul spent some time talking in Timothy about uh, men and women and what roles were and were not appropriate to each in the context of the church community. And it would seem that this was one particular area in which the false teaching that was going on in Ephesus was having an unhelpful impact. In chapter 3 of that letter of 1 Timothy, Paul continues dealing with the matter of roles in the church, outlining for Timothy and the Ephesians what kind of things they ought to be looking for as they consider the question of who should be set apart for particular positions of leadership and ministry in the congregation. In the passage just prior to the one we're looking at this morning, Paul provided Timothy and his congregation with a list of qualifications for elders. And in using such a list, Paul hoped to provide some really concrete guidelines for the Ephesians uh, to use so that they could try them on, so to speak, the various men in the congregation, to see how they measured up and to see whether or not God was setting apart certain persons as elders. So you have to remember that the first elders... In, in all of the churches in Acts, the first elders were appointed by the apostles themselves. They went around doing that. The book of Acts records that in various places. But now, at the point of the time of the writing of this letter, it's a little bit further down the track. And the time has come for the apostles to stop setting apart elders and for congregations to start choosing their own elders and their own deacons. And so... Uh, Timothy and Paul, through the letter to Timothy, is giving them a means by which they would do that. Because the fact is, the apostles weren't going to be with them forever. The church was going to have to be, as we see now, in the practice of setting apart their own leaders for quite some time. And so Paul wanted to help them with that. Well, in the verses currently sort of before us this morning, verses 8 to 13, Paul shifts from discussing qualifications for elders, which is one group of leaders in the church, to discussing the qualifications for deacons, which is another group of leaders in the church. And he does this again to permit for, in pursuit of this overall goal of encouraging Timothy by promoting the good order and function of the church. And let me tell you, it's important. This is a very important subject, because I'll tell you a few things. Few things will more quickly discourage a pastor or a create as much heartache and grief in a local church as will having inappropriate, unqualified people serving as church officers. And so Paul wanted to prevent that from happening in the Ephesian church. And guess what? It is up to you to prevent that from happening in this church. That is your job. That is your responsibility to keep that from happening so, pay attention. It's important. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the author of life, the author of our life and our new life, and the author of this book. Please take and apply then these words, which are your words, to our individual hearts in a way which makes us different people, in which communicates to us the realities that you wanted communicated when you determined. To not only write these words, but also to preserve them for us. So here we are, Father, in this moment that you have fully orchestrated. Make this time useful for your sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13 in this microscopic Bible. I don't know why I bring such a small Bible up here. I like to think I'm younger. Starting at verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Continuing in the pattern of verses 1 to 7, where Paul um, went through a list of certain qualities that were to characterize uh, those who aspired to another office, that is the eldership, Paul here put together a similar such list for those who would be deacons in God's church. Now we're going to think about uh, that list a little bit, parts of that list. We're not going to go through everything in it. We're going to think about parts of that list in a little bit. But first we need to answer the question, what is a deacon? Uh, What does the Bible say about this office? Why does that matter? How does this role function in the church? I can tell you that asking that question is a whole lot easier than answering that question. Um, For starters, the immediate context does not really help all that much, since Paul does not attempt to provide here a description of a deacon's responsibilities. Just as he's done with the office of elder, Paul has only concerned himself with outlining the qualifications for the office, not with describing the duties of the office. So he tells us, these are the kind of people you want in these offices, but he doesn't tell us in the letter what they're doing what their role is. Uh, and so, although we can um, draw some conclusions from the qualifications themselves, it would seem from Paul's manner of writing that he's assuming that his readers would already have some working knowledge of what elders and deacons were all about. Clearly, there were already some people functioning in these roles in the Ephesian church. Now, that's all fine and good for the Ephesians, but it doesn't help you and me very much. And so, in order to know what deacons are all about, we have to look outside of 1 Timothy. And unfortunately, when you do so, you discover, and you start looking around in the, the New Testament, what you discover is there's an amazing absence of information on this subject. At least with the elders, you have a number of passages to give us some important insights into that role, but not so with the deacons. Outside of Paul's words here, the only other fairly indisputable reference to deacons as an office is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And that's simply a reference to the title. It doesn't tell us anything about the role. In only one other place, Romans 16.1, there's a reference to a woman named Phoebe, which might be referring to her as a deacon or deaconess, but it is just as likely that it's simply referring to her as a servant of the gospel. It's difficult to make a convincing argument one way or the other on this since the Greek word used there is identical to the one that's used in other places where the context is clearly not talking about a person who's serving in an office or a role as a deacon. In fact, that's the majority of ways that this word diakonos is used in the Bible. It's simply talking about the service that God's people render in the ministry. And so... There's nothing in the passage itself there, Romans, that really pushes you more toward one view than the other. And in my view, the frequent and common use of the word to refer to the ministry activity of God's people, more generally, I think, is a caution to us to not take this away from the people of God by overemphasizing the nature of diaconal work as an office. So having said all that, the reality is uh, we have no clear set of descriptions as to what concretely diaconal work is about. What we're left then with is a passage which most theologians on this subject will take and use as a centerpiece for the discussions on the duties and responsibilities of the diaconate and that passage is Acts 6, verses 1 to 6. Let me read again uh, from my microscopic Bible Acts 6, 1 to 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So there you have racism in the early church. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them." In Acts 6, we see how in the early days of the New Testament church, a problem arose, probably racially motivated, in which there was some discrimination going on within the church, so that certain widows were being overlooked in the daily distributions of food. Now, from the beginning of the New Testament church, the apostles had basically been overseeing this task until it got to be so involved that they had to do something about it to to deal with those sort of housekeeping details within the church, and, uh, and so the apostles addressed this situation by setting apart seven men from a, among them who would take care of the widow-slash-food distribution problem in the early church. They were to exercise oversight of that kind of subset of the church's overall ministry while the apostles devoted more time to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now I assume that prayer here is talking about prayer with the people. In other words, they weren't just freeing them up so they could go hang out in a prayer closet somewhere. I think it means prayer in the context of ministering the word to people. Um, So this this passage, uh, Acts 6, as the case is typically made, is a picture of the creation of the first diaconate. Even though Stephen and the others are never actually referred to as deacons in this passage. Now that conclusion may be right. I suspect it is. Uh, We may be witnessing here the creation of the office of deacon and if so we get some important clues about the purpose and responsibilities of that office that would be a legitimate conclusion to draw from these verses although it must be acknowledged it is not an inescapable conclusion. And I say this simply to point out that in determining that Acts 6 is talking about the creation of the diaconate, we have to make a little bit of a leap. I think it's legitimate in the end but I think we need to acknowledge it as a leap. However, if we're going to regard this passage in its immediate context as being pivotal for understanding what is the role and responsibility of the deaconate, then to be fair, we need to be prepared to deal with the evidence of the passage as a whole and not just select portions of it, which I don't think historically has always been the case. The tendency has been, with regard to deacons, to underread this passage and apply some of it, but not all of it. So, assuming that Acts 6 is describing the early development of the diaconal role in the church, what does this passage and what follows from it tell us about diaconal roles and responsibilities in the early church? For starters, we see in Acts 6 two different groups of people, the apostles on one side, Stephen and the other six disciples who have been set apart on the other. Both of these groups have differing emphases in their ministry, and yet the reality is they both need each other, and they're meant to work together in a complementary fashion. We see here that there's a willingness on the part of Stephen and company to take upon themselves certain responsibilities, to engage in sacrificial ministry, not only for those who would directly benefit from their ministry, which would be the neglected widows, but also to do that for the good of the church as a whole, uh, which would indirectly benefit as a result of now the apostles being freed up to better pursue their ministry of prayer and the word. In short, the deacon's attention to the personal and physical needs of the people would free up the apostles to address their spiritual needs more directly. This sort of sacrificial, complementary perspective on ministry is one which the church in our own day would also benefit greatly from. Namely, learning to see that our individual ministries are valuable not only for what they accomplish in themselves, but they're also valuable for the fact that when we do them well, they free up others to do their ministry even better. And so uh, and free up others to devote themselves more fully to their role within the body of Christ. Uh, this applies not just to elders and deacons, but to believers in general. That's how we're meant to function. See, we're 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. And so if we're going to try to summarize the ministry of Stephen and his colleagues, we might say it this way. The role of Stephen and the others set apart with him was to oversee the personal, pastoral, and practical aspects, right? Personal, pastoral, practical aspects of the church's ministries, including its ministries of mercy, in order that needs might be met and so that those who are given primarily to looking after their spiritual needs might be able to more fully devote themselves to those things for the greater benefit of the church and the glory of God. Now, I think that's a good first attempt at describing what the deacon's role is about, but more needs to be said. That definition is not complete, I don't think. We must be sure to notice, and this is where taking into account the whole of this section in Acts chapter 6 comes in, but we must notice that while it was part of Stephen and Company's role to protect the apostles' ministry of the word and prayer, this does not mean that Stephen and Company were not to have their own ministry of word and prayer themselves. Indeed, it's instructive to note, if you read on in Acts, that as soon as he's been set apart for this diaconal ministry, right, Stephen is shown to be performing signs and wonders amongst the people. And he then goes on, Stephen, the deacon, mind you, to deliver the longest recorded sermon in the book of Acts. Longer than Peter, longer than Paul, longer than anybody else. Preached by Stephen, the deacon. Indeed, Stephen's ministry of the word is so challenging and powerful that he's actually martyred because of it. And then after Stephen's gone, we see a further example of this kind of ongoing ministry in the life and work of Philip. Who was Philip? We call him Philip the Evangelist. In Acts 8, he's part of that original seven deacons. Later on, Philip the Evangelist. So while one might characterize the work of Stephen and his colleagues as being one of mercy and service and assistance to the apostles to enhance their ministry of the Word, this does not mean that these deacons were not to have any kind of word ministry themselves. And so it seems to me that this is a crucial observation to make. Because in my experience, there's sometimes a a radical disjunction drawn between the work of elders and deacons in our own day and if, as if there's not a great deal of overlap between the two, and I think biblically there is, as if the Ministry of Word and Prayer is the exclusive activity of one group, but not the concern of the other. That's not biblical. And so in a lot of places, the deacons are the people that cut the grass and take care of the finances, and that's the end of their role. That's unbiblical, people. That's unbiblical. And so one consequence of that is times to see the diaconate as a kind of second-class office whose standards are not as high as significant as those of elders. And I'm only speaking from within Presbyterian circles here. But at least in Presbyterian circles, this radical disjunction between the two offices has sometimes had some unhelpful consequences, which includes a lowering of expectations and a definition of the role that is somewhat artificial and which seems to be a lot more restrictive than the evidence of Scripture would warrant if in the New Testament, if indeed Stephen and company are the first deacons, then they are deacons who are quite active, not just in practical ministries, but in ministering the word to others through teaching and personal evangelism, as well as through deeds of love and mercy. And if we carry that expectation into our current practices with regard to deacons, we might see a much-needed raising of the bar and a more fuller view and practice of diaconal ministry in our congregations. To be sure, the ministry of deacons is a practical ministry but it is not merely practical. It's deeply personal and it's interpersonal. It's concerned with meeting real needs within the body of Christ and within the community. It's concerned with working cooperatively and strategically alongside others in the congregation especially the elders, so that the ministry of the Word and prayer can be enhanced. And yet it does not see the ministry of the Word and prayer as the exclusive domain of the elders, or even of the deacons for that matter, but that's another sermon for another day. Can you still hear me? need a, a teleprompter. Now, with all of that in mind, I'm going to move ahead. With all of that in mind, I want to think just for a few minutes about some of the qualifications that Paul has listed here for those who would serve in this capacity. And as you look at the list, you'll notice there's a great deal of overlap between the things said here and the things that are said just prior to this in verses 1-7 to about the elders. For example, Paul says that elders are to be respectable and that deacons are to be dignified, talking about the same thing, I think, basically. The sort of dignity being talked about here It's not concerned with how one might be regarded by polite society or whether a person possessed certain social graces. It's not that kind of dignity. Rather, the dignity he's speaking of is concerned with personal integrity. It's specifically talking about a person's self-mastery. In fact, probably the best way to define what Paul means by dignified is to look at what immediately follows in verse 8. By dignified, he means someone who is not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. That's what he means. Now what is that all about? Well, not being double-tongued is a reference to a person's speech, obviously. In our own day, we refer to double-tongued people as people who speak out of both sides of their mouth. People who say one thing to one person, something else to another. A deacon must not be like that. He must be consistent in his speech. He must be, not be someone who is a people pleaser and as a result caters his speech to whatever will cause him to be well regarded by the person in front of him, regardless of whether his words are entirely true or whether they are consistent with other things he said to other people on the same subject. In short, the deacon must be someone who tries to be a straight shooter with everyone, no matter who it is, standing in front of them. When you think about that kind of ministry, the sort of ministry that deacons are meant to have, this kind of qualification makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And a person who's deeply involved in the lives of persons in the church, as well as the community, and especially persons who are undergoing a time of hardship, a deacon in those situations can be an agent of great help and healing, but he can also be because of his tongue, an agent of chaos and division and destruction. He's in a perfect position to use his words to take advantage of and manipulate persons and situations if he chooses. Which is why deacons need to be people who are sincere, especially with regard to their speech. Another aspect of being dignified, as Paul talks about it here, involves a deacon's self-control in the area of alcohol. A deacon must be someone who knows when enough is enough, It's not a requirement that he need that he be a teetotaler. To be sure, that is the choice that some church officers make, and they're free to make that. But they're not free to impose that choice on others. But if the deacon enjoys wine, he must do so in a way which is self-controlled and which is not itself a consequence, an expression, of an addiction, which by definition is a loss of self-control. A third component of being dignified involves the deacon's attitude toward money. The deacon must not be greedy for dishonest gain. He must not be a lover of money, a person who's captivated by the material things of this world. He must not be a person who struggles a great deal with this particular idolatry. And this too makes sense as you think about what it is that deacons will be doing and the kind of things they'll concern themselves with in their role. They will frequently be involved with uh, monies and with material goods As they are collected and distributed to those in need, they will have access to the church's financial resources, which at times may be considerable, and which would therefore prove to be a great temptation to those who are particularly challenged in this area of their heart. So one area of qualification for the deacons is clustered around this idea of dignity as a function of a person's self-mastery in the areas of speech, alcohol, and money. Another qualification that stands out is found in verse 9. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What does that mean? Now the word mystery there, mysterion, is Paul's technical word for the great mystery of God's plan to save His people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul regularly called that, referred to that as a mystery, and he did so because way back when, when the prophets were looking and, pre- and talking about the Redeemer that was to come, but nobody had any idea how that was going to work out. It really was a mystery. How was God going to send this Redeemer? How He's going to work out that salvation? And so until Jesus showed up, it was a great mystery how God was going to pull that off. But Jesus came and God actually did pull it off. And so that is the language that Paul uses to refer to, basically, the Gospel. And so what Paul is saying is that deacons need to be sound... Biblically grounded, solid people who have a deep understanding of the gospel and its implications for life and ministry. Again, when you think about the kind of things that deacons are supposed to be involved in, then this kind of qualification makes a great deal of sense, doesn't it? A person who's engaged in practical, day to day, interpersonal ministry, who's with people when they're hurting and needy, that person will have a great opportunity to talk with others, and will be in a unique position to help people see their life and circumstances, as messy as that can be, but to help them see those things in the light of the gospel. But he won't do that if he's not grounded deeply in it himself. and He won't be able to do that. Persons in those situations where people are hurting are going to get asked tough theological questions. Deacons need to be prepared for that too. So it's vitally important that your deacons are deeply spiritual persons, who are willing and able to carry on this sort of ministry with people, even as they address very practical needs. Pointing people again and again back to the sufficiency of Christ, praying with and for them that they might see and believe that sufficiency is truly their possession now in and through the gospel. Now, there's other qualifications here. There's uh, the, the one that uh, is, is... a. Probably the most challenging statement in this section is verse 11, where the question is whether or not, exegetically, is Paul referring to uh, the wives of deacons in verse 11, or is he referring to women who are serving as deacons or deaconesses themselves? The translation I read to you has taken the view that he's referring to the wives of deacons. Uh, That is the position of the PCA, our denomination. That is the position of this church with regard to that. There are good, strong arguments on both sides of that issue, how to read that passage, uh, and I would be happy to talk through that with you. If you have questions about that, I can tell you what the strong arguments are, and uh, we can have uh, a great time debating that together. If you'd like to do that, please track me down. We'll get some coffee and we'll have a good talk. Um, and you might convince me, who knows. And so, uh, but but uh, that's uh, there. There's also some other important things said in verse 12. I don't want to take you through everything, but I want to tell you what to do with this list now. I want you to go back and read it. I want you to think through the things that have been said. Read through the whole passage. But then you get to the point of asking the question, well, what do we do with this? What do you do with a list like this? And the answer is Cinderella. Cinderella. You know the story, the uh, unfortunate... Apparently, beautiful waif who uh, has all these cruel people around her gets an invitation to the ball from her fairy godmother who has limited powers because she can only create things that last till midnight. It's always puzzled me. I don't get that. Why couldn't she do it any further? I mean, really? She's like in school. She's in training. She's like a fairy godmother apprentice. I don't know. So she goes to the ball, and things are going great. The prince, of course, falls for her, and then she's got to run. And she leaves her slipper behind. Though, and then he sets off in this great search for the princess, or the, this mystery princess. And which, you know, think about it. Back in the day when the story was set, they didn't bathe every week back then. You know, that's, that's some commitment there, going around, smelling the feet of a lot of people. And uh, it always puzzles me too. Why is he just trying on a shoe? Is that it? He's not even looking at them? Is he just checking out the feet? What's that? It's a very weird story. I don't get it. Um, but here's the point of the story about Cinderella. You try the shoe on. If it doesn't fit, don't wear it. If it does, it's your shoe. You need to wear it. That's the point. What you do with these qualifications is these qualifications are like a shoe. You take them and you mentally try them on all kinds of people in this congregation. And if it's a fit, is it going to be a perfect fit? No, it's not. And unless you're actually talking with Jesus himself, at which point he would be back and we wouldn't be doing that. So, but, in, but you want a good fit. A close fit. And when you find the people that that fits, you talk to this people. You say to them, I'd like to nominate you as a deacon. Here's why. I think it's a good fit. If, on the other hand, it's not a good fit... Please, don't try to talk somebody into being something they're not. Because here's the deal. We do not make deacons or elders. God makes them. He sets them apart. He equips them. He gifts them that way. Your job is not to make somebody a deacon. Make them start being something they're not currently being. We have to not make them behave in ways they are not already behaving now. Now. Your job is to identify them. To take the slipper, put it on, and say, I found one. Will you please serve the body of Christ by being the deacon that you are and all the good that will come from that and the good that will come from you taking that role so that others are freed up to do their role even better. Will you do that? That's what you do with this list. Do the Cinderella thing. And I'd like you to be praying about that thinking about that as a congregation over the next couple weeks. We'll close the nominations on August 4th. If you've got somebody in mind, we've got a form for you to fill out. And uh, we'll have those on the table over there and some up here in the front. If you have any questions about any of that, please see me, Woody, or any of the elders or any of the deacons. Um, And let me just say to congratulate you. The last time we did this, we've done this two times now. You've done a great job of identifying deacons in this congregation because we have terrific deacons and it is a great fit. So let's keep doing that as a congregation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for not um, leaving us to our own devices. To invent criteria for what kind of person would be good to serve in this role. Because we'd have a million different answers just in this room. Uh, Thank you for telling us the ones that matter the most. So now help us to use these things you've given us in the way that you intended. Help us to answer this question. Do we have others that we need to set apart here? And if so, who are they? Make that clear to us, Father, through this admittedly human, admittedly fallible process. But work through it nonetheless for your sake and for the good of your church and for the good that will come through that. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll now take up an offering for those who want to support the work of this church and ministries through this church. and. Um, you want to give and support that, please do. If you're visiting here, we don't expect you to give. Uh, we are glad that you're here. You can if you want to, but nobody's expecting it. And we're just glad that you're here with us.